Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to an Amber Day, the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Fisher. It's a beautiful Thursday morning. I'm still in my jammies. I decided to just come over here and start recording. Got my matcha latte. I'm very excited. Today we're going to be talking about chronic inflammation in PCOS and we're going to go into a lot of depth on that topic, specifically talking about like where it comes from, what it's kind of associated with. So you can see if it seems like it sounds like you and then the steps that I take as a nutritionist to start kind of helping with it, at least within my scope. So um, before we get going, I have some announcements. I don't know. Announcements, questions, uh, whatever. I have like an intro thing that I need to get through today. And you guys know, if you've been listening, that I've been trying not to do this long intro thing anymore, but today I think it's merited. So we are probably at the posting of this reaching about 20,000 downloads on the podcast, which is incredible. And I want to say thank you to all of you who have listened. Um, if this is your first time listening, I'm so glad you're here. If this is your whatever hundredth time, I don't even know how many episodes I actually have posted. Um, but however many times you've listened, I appreciate you. Uh, one thing that I am requesting though is, um, I really do need some reviews and I know like I always ask at the end, but this time I'm going to beg, please. Um, if you have never left a review, please do. Um, I've made it very easy for you in the show notes. There's a link. You can just click right on it and get to the review page. You have to have an iTunes account, but it's pretty easy to make one if you don't have one. And yeah, you don't even need to leave any words like just the stars is cool. I, um, it's very hard to get podcast reviews and that's why podcasters are always asking for them because it's like it, it, I don't know why they don't make it easier, but it just requires so many steps for you to like actually get to the point where you do it. So, um, it's a kindness that you have to like have the energy to do. Um, but if you have gotten anything helpful out of this podcast, that would be a really great way to, um, thank me and I thank you because this is a mutually beneficial relationship. And so I appreciate you, but yeah, I'm begging. Do you guys want, <laughs> I don't know what else I need to do to beg, but please, um, we really need, we really need reviews. If you have, um, ideas of things that I need to, you know, do to incentivize. Um, and now that I say that, I'm like, I don't necessarily know if I want you guys to, I'm not making an OnlyFans account. Okay. Um, so let's see. Second thing is functional PCOS group. I may have mentioned this before, but this August I am running a group with my friend slash fellow PCOS expert, Hannah. She runs the conscious nutritionist account. You've probably heard of her. Um, and her and I are going to run this group together and 
um, a lot of people are getting like a little bit confused because it's called functional PCOS and a lot of my stuff is called functional PCOS because that's sort of like my part of my branding, I guess. So I have a course that I mention a lot that's like a self-paced deal. You can take it anytime and it's called functional PCOS, a root cause nutrition course. Okay. So that's like a little 12 week, like you do it on your own type thing. This is a group program. So this is going to be, you're actually going to be with me and Hannah, like we're going to be teaching you um, live. You know, there's going to be um, a community for the group where you can ask questions. It's like a little, like your own little social media just for the group. Hannah and I are going to like go live on there and like show you guys exactly how we like cook and grocery shop and all these different things. So it's going to be very informative, a lot more than you get out of like our typical content, you know, like it's going to be, um, a real high value program. That's what we're aiming for. It's our first time running it. So, um, we are like really working hard behind the scenes to try to make sure that it's got everything that it needs, but it's based, the, the educational piece of it is based off of my functional PCOS course. So that's why it's called functional PCOS. Um, we're adding some extra stuff. So I of course brought in all of my things from the functional PCOS course and like a lot of the documents from there and different things, but she also has, um, a lot of her own stuff that she's bringing in. So it's really like the combination of our two minds. And we think about PCOS in a very similar way. We have um, mostly the same opinions, um, but we also approach like educating about it from different perspectives. And I think she does a really good job with things that like, I don't feel like as good at. Like one thing I really like about her is she kind of like, she has a real skill for like romanticizing the, the like PCOS friendly lifestyle, which, um, honestly is like kind of, well, it's a gift and it's also important. I find that like for myself, excuse me, eating for PCOS is like, it can feel very boring. It can feel like you're missing out on a lot. Um, because you know, you have to make choices that like other people don't have to make and that kind of sucks. Um, but at the same time, like it, if you're eating for this condition to try to improve it, you're also like really taking advantage of a lot of like the beautiful things that earth has to offer, right? Like beautiful vegetables and like in season stuff. And you can make it really aesthetic and really, really, um, I don't know, just really like, exciting and, and feel very romantical. Romantical is not a word, but it's a word that me and, um, some friends made up years ago anyway. Um, and I love that she like does that really well. I just think she just like makes it like, you know, like an aesthetic, which, uh, is important because a lot of us don't really have anything like that to look up to. I know I like, I, didn't. And that's why I started following her in the first place because she inspires me. So she's really good at that stuff. Um, She's also really smart. She's a PA actually. So she has a double master's degree. She's got a master's in nutrition and she's, um, she's a PA, a physician's assistant. So, uh, she's really smart. I am also me. And of course, if you're listening to this, you probably think that I'm smart and you enjoy the things that I say. So, um, I'm not going to like humble brag on myself, but like we're both experts in this topic. And so I think it's going to be a really cool combination. So I hope some of you guys will join. Now here's the deets. It's going to run for eight weeks and it starts on August 31st. So during that time, you will have access to the community. Like there will be 
homework assignments for you during the week. It's kind of, there's meal plans and grocery lists and all that, but it is also something that you can modify for yourself. So like, for example, if the meal plans don't perfectly fit what you need, you know, you can adjust them. If you just want to be there for the educational piece and like not do the homework and things like that, that's fine too. Um, it's really up to you how you want to engage with it, but it's, uh, going to be a lot of fun. So early bird enrollment has already ended, um, but we are still having enrollment ongoing. We have filled several spots, so we won't keep, um, like we do have a limit, like a cap on how many people we're, we're going to allow in the program. So there's still some spots available, at, at least as of the recording of this. So I would get in earlier rather than later. If you do want to, want to take it, we've got some payment plans and things to make it a little bit more affordable. Um, and you can also, as an add-on, add like one-on-one visits with either me or Hannah. Hannah's going to do like uh, skincare and um, like consultations and stuff about like, you know, low toxin living because she's like really big on that. And I'm doing like one-on-one sessions to kind of help give you an overview of, you know, what I think is going on with like like just helping you go through your PCOS and figure out, get a little bit deeper into what might be going on and give you some like help to try to figure out like how to move forward and that kind of thing. So, um, it's, those are also really limited and actually we, we only have a couple of each of those left. So those I would definitely jump on. Anyway, that is that we will not go on further. Uh, nine minutes. I knew I was going to take this whole time. Okay. So inflammation and PCOS, let's talk first about what inflammation is. So what I'm discussing here is chronic inflammation. This is like a low grade systemic inflammation. It's happening all over the body. There's no single defined source. Uh, I get some pushback on the internet, which is interesting to me. It's interesting to me, the things that people decide to push back on, on the internet, but I get some pushback about inflammation, people kind of claiming that it's not a real thing. And I'm kind of like, hmm, that's interesting. I think um, there's this tendency to use words like inflammation, um, to use words like anti-inflammatory, to kind of be gimmicky or salesy. And so it's turned a lot of people off or they kind of outright dismiss people who talk about um, those topics as being quacks or whatever um, without really diving deeper into understanding like the difference. Um, so when I'm speaking about inflammation, you know, I'm speaking about a real thing. This is a real thing that occurs. It can be tested. Um, it happens to a lot of people, especially those with chronic health conditions. PCOS is actually, uh, an inflammatory condition. Like if you look at research studies, they often say PCOS, an inflammatory condition, because it's an inflammatory condition. So there's a, a level of low grade inflammation that's present in, 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 in PCOS. So the vast majority of us who have PCOS are dealing with some level of inflammation. For some of us, it's a bigger problem than others. Um, there are two kinds of inflammation. There's acute and then there's chronic. So you've heard of acute inflammation. This is like what you think about when you think of inflammation. So, you know, if you've ever broken a bone, you know how it swells up and it's like real puffy and like, it's like incredibly painful. That's inflammation, um, acute inflammation. And that's a response that your body has to an injury to help protect and heal that injury. 
So what happens in chronic inflammation is kind of the same thing, except there's no definable source of injury. Your body just feels like, you know, something's not right here. Like everything's a little bit out of whack. And so there's like kind of this like low level inflammation just happening all over. And this is why many people who deal with inflammation feel like they're carrying extra water weight or like they feel puffy. Uh, this is, that's definitely not the only sign of inflammation. We're going to talk about some signs that are kind of associated with inflammation in a bit, but, um, there's definitely this level of like, I see this a lot with clients where they come in and they just kind of have this all over puffiness and they typically will assume that it's just, it's like fat, it's weight gain or whatever. I mean, it does, water does weigh, does weigh something, but in a lot of cases, when we start working together and we start reducing the kind of inflammatory impact of their diet, a lot of that water will just like slough off fairly quickly. And even without a lot of fat loss, the person just has a more, you know, slim sort of appearance because a lot of that puffiness is gone. Uh, so it's definitely something that a lot of people are concerned about, you know, nobody really likes that puffy look. Uh, and so I get a lot of people who come in to my practice and they're kind of like, I just feel like, you know, I'm just, I'm just bloated everywhere. And, and yeah, I mean, a lot of times that's connected to, to excess water weight gain from an, an inflammatory response. So, um, why is it so common in PCOS? Well, it's, that's a little bit of a complicated question. Um, I think it comes from a lot of different places in PCOS. Number one, it, it may be one of the drivers for PCOS in the first place. So it's sort of a feedback loop. It's like the inflammation may have like started to increase the PCOS response and then the PCOS response increases uh, inflammation. It's similar with like endometriosis. You know, endometriosis is an inflammatory condition and it feeds itself. So as the tissues are inflamed, it makes more estrogen and more inflammatory, um, you know, molecules. And then that actually feeds the tissue, which causes it to create more. So it's like, it's a, a loop that once it gets started, it's hard to stop. So PCOS, you know, having a lot of like cystic activity or a lot of like uh, follicles on the ovaries can be inflammatory. Um, having all those hormones be out of balance can be inflammatory. But the biggest kind of places where I see inflammation come from a PCOS are more those like root cause of PCOS issues. So inflammation is often connected to gut health disturbances and that can then throw off the insulin balance in the body. It can increase the stress response in the body. Both of those two things can also increase PCOS symptoms. So I have seen a fair number of people with PCOS who did not really have like a true insulin resistance issue. They were struggling with some insulin resistance, but it was primarily because they were so inflamed and their body was like chronically stressed from that. So they were producing excess sugars and it was making it hard to keep things regulated, even when they were eating really low carb. And I've seen a lot of these people who they remove the foods that are kind of like causing inflammation in the moment and it reduces that inflammation enough that all of a sudden, you know, things start working better and they really didn't have to like cut carbs that much because really underneath they don't have that much of a, 
of an insulin issue. So I've seen that before. Um, but yeah, it's so common in PCOS because it's one of the root issues of PCOS. It's one of the things that drives it um, to a greater degree for some people than for others. And we'll talk about um, that in a bit. So inflammation can come from a variety of different places. So I posted something about this recently with like three columns. It was kind of like all the different places where inflammation might come from. And, you know, we typically think like, at least from a nutrition perspective, we're really hyper-focusing on food. And food is a big part of this. I mean, food is something that eating is something we all do, hopefully three times a day, at least. And so it has one of the biggest potentials to be an impact for us, um, at least in terms of inflammation. But inflammation can come from a lot of different things. And one of the kind of big overlooked places is stress. Um, having a stressful, like on the go sort of lifestyle can increase inflammation in the body um, because it can alter the gut microbiome. Inside use, if you have been on, like if you've chronically used a lot of um Instead, so anti-inflammatories like uh, ibuprofen or typically this this instead use stuff doesn't come from just like ibuprofen. It comes from like some some of the stronger um, NSAIDs. But I have seen people though who have developed like leaky gut from just taking like a lot of ibuprofen. Like they were like ibuprofen poppers, you know, they're popping them every day uh, for different aches and pains and things. So NSAIDs. Uh, inside usage can happen and then gut dysbiosis. So many different things can throw off the gut microbiome. And once it's thrown off, that's an inflammatory thing for the body. Um, gut health in general, there are various things that can go wrong there and like enzyme deficiencies, um, food sensitivities, allergies, all those kinds of things. And then, um, poor diet, of course. Uh, and poor diet, you know, I know we have all kinds of different opinions about what makes a good diet and what doesn't make a good diet. And I'm definitely one of those people who believes that everyone's different and not every diet works for everybody. But there are some principles that are pretty fundamental to healthy eating and not healthy eating. And so for poor diet, it would be things like lack of diversity, um, lack of fiber, uh, heavy on the fried foods, heavy on the refined foods. Um, you know, just like if you're going to McDonald's every day. That's a poor diet. And then um, nutrient deficiencies. So eating a poor diet can, of course, result in nutrient deficiencies eventually, but also um, various things can result in nutrient deficiencies. And, um, you know, you may have like genetic predispositions toward nutrient deficiencies. Once you've got a nutrient deficiency, then it's, um, it's something that can cause some inflammatory responses and can also contribute to gut dysbiosis. So, um, some conditions that I find are typically associated with inflammation that often go along with PCOS. So any kind of autoimmune issue. So if you have Hashimoto's or rheumatoid arthritis or Sjogren's or psoriatic arthritis, or really any of these autoimmune mediated health conditions, um, those are always connected in some form or another to gut health issues. Um, they're, again, like 
everybody's different. There are different mechanisms for all this, but I've never met a person with autoimmunity who didn't have some gut stuff going on that needed to be um, fixed. The gut is is where 80% of the cells that sort of make up our immune system live. And so if our immune system is out of whack, you know, there's a strong connection to like our gut being involved. Um, so Hashimoto's or any kind of autoimmune disease, if you have any of those, even if you don't feel particularly like you m- might be dealing with inflammation, it's likely that you're dealing with with some inflammation just because the two are so connected and overlap so much. And I typically find that people with like inflammatory type PCOS are more predisposed to having, you know, uh, comorbidity with some sort of autoimmune condition. So which means that they have PCOS and they have RA or Hashimoto's. Now, a question that I get asked a lot is, does the Hashimoto's cause the PCOS or did PCOS cause me to have Hashimoto's? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that both of them might be uh, mediated by the same root issue. Um, You know, your PCOS and your Hashimoto's might both have a connection to a root cause with issues with gut health disturbances. Um, and there are likely other things playing a factor here too. I think it's important to mention, um, cause I probably will forget to mention this later, but like with autoimmunity, um, and even with PCOS, there are factors outside of what we eat that play a role. So things like environmental toxins, uh, you know, phthalates and PCOS, there's a lot of research being done on that. So like, um, endocrine disrupting chemicals, uh, plastics, and then um, particularly with autoimmune issues, there might be other environmental factors. Like I see a lot of pe- a lot of hairdressers who have autoimmunity, um, which is interesting. So there's outside stuff that can play a role too. So if you have these issues, yes, food makes a big difference and it's very important. But also if you're doing your very best with your food and you're still like struggling with this stuff, I want to give you a break here and say it's not your fault because there's many different things that we cannot control for. Um, even things like the quality of the air, um, the, the water quality that we have, which if you don't have a reverse osmosis filter, I would highly recommend um, because water is, you know, we drink water more than we even eat or we should. Uh, so I'm getting off on a rabbit trail. But yeah, it's it's like it's not that you fix your diet and you can just like automatically heal all these things. I have seen that happen with some people who very much it was mediated by diet and gut health stuff. But if the person, you know, has a lot of sensitivities or issues with environmental toxins and, and um, other things going on, then there may be other factors playing a role. Um, so if you have any autoimmune condition, you probably likely have some inflammation along with your PCOS, and it's possible that your PCOS might be driven mostly by inflammation. Uh, if you're dealing with digestive issues, so we're talking IBS, um, diarrhea, constipation, combination diarrhea, constipation. If you're one of those people who's like uh, constipated, 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 then you have diarrhea, and then you're constipated, 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 and then every once in a while you're like, oh, I have a normal stool, but then it goes back to to diarrhea, constipation. Um you may not be diagnosed with IBS, but like that's enough of a digestive abnormality that I would consider that to be associated with some gut health disturbances and potentially um, 
inflammation in your PCOS. So any kind of digestive issue, if you deal with like food sensitivities or food intolerances, you have trouble breaking down FODMAPs, you get a lot of bloating, you get reflux, you have GERD, um, SIBO, overgrowth, like all those, all that kind of stuff, all of that, um, I can almost guarantee you is playing a role in your PCOS symptoms. So this is one place where it's like, I see a lot of people kind of stumble because they are attempting to deal with their PCOS purely from the insulin resistance perspective, because that's mostly what we hear about online, right? They're like, okay, I'm going to cut my carbs. I'm going to eat more fiber, blah, blah, blah. And then they end up like having raging diarrhea and um, they gain weight and they're just like, what is happening here? This is not doing what it's supposed to do. Likely it's because they don't have the resources to properly digest their foods. They're dealing with food sensitivities. This is triggering some inflammation and that inflammation is making the body feel unsafe to let go of weight to, um, to it's, it's causing an uptick in testosterone production, which is kind of keeping that PCOS going. So we know that inflammation, even on its own. So let's say you have no insulin resistance and you have no adrenal stuff going on. If you just have inflammation, it can upregulate testosterone all on its own, which is interesting. Um, it can also make insulin resistance worse, which then can create more testosterone. Um, and when I say testosterone, you know, we're talking about like all androgens as well. Like there are pathways to the increase in DHEA um, and that stuff too. But testosterone is typically what we're dealing with here. And... Um, Keep in mind that it's so hard, it's so hard for me on podcasts because I'm like, okay, like I need to not go down every single rabbit trail here because I just can't explain everything in one go. This is where something like group program is really effective. But anyway, um, if you have had lab work done and your testosterone looks normal, but you're dealing with facial hair or you're dealing with hair loss or you're dealing with, you know, these sort of like abnormalities that look very androgenic. Um, lab work is not everything. It's not the end all be all. There are many different forms of testosterone. The one that particularly is probably causing a lot of these issues is dihydrotestosterone. If you're just having lab work done and it says testosterone and that looks normal. That doesn't mean that you don't have high testosterone. Um, it just could mean that you, you know, you're a good, like you're converting quickly from testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. You're converting quickly from testosterone to estrogen because testosterone converts into estrogen in the body. So there are a lot of different conversion things that go on that could make your labs look normal. It's also not necessarily about how high and out of range something is, but how balanced it is with other things. So if you've got um, high testosterone relative to the amount of progesterone in your system or whatever, then that can be indicative of an imbalance as well. So Hannah and I both have been kind of like saying this a lot when we've been going live because we get a lot of questions about labs and people are like, what lab can I run for this? What lab can I run for that? And we are going to be doing like in, in my course and then in the, in the group program, there's like a really substantial document on labs, how to read them, like what they mean, all that stuff. Um, specifically for PCOS. And we're going to kind of go over that. But when it really comes down to it at the end of the day, go based off of how your body is feeling 
looking behaving. The cool thing about PCOS is that you have like the perfect experimental vessel right with you all the time. And that's your menstrual cycle and how your menstrual cycle is going is indicative of how balanced your hormones are underneath. It's not going to be going well if it's not balanced. So if the labs look completely normal, um, but things are still out of balance, there's still something going on. Don't rely on those labs to the extent that you don't trust your own intuition about what's happening in your body. I do think it's obviously very important to, you know, work with your doctor, make sure you're doing things safely, all that kind of stuff. But don't get caught up in this sort of, I've got to find it on lab work because if I don't find it on lab work, then I don't know what to do. Learn to look at your body a little bit more deeply to kind of see if you can see the signs of different stuff. Learn to use yourself as an experiment for yourself. So when you try something, try to isolate it out and see if you can, you know, see if it's making a difference, all that kind of stuff. Like use your intuition with a lot of this. I think a lot of us just rely too heavily on like what labs say, particularly when it comes to finding out if they have inflammation or if they have insulin resistance. I see so many people who come in and they're like, my testosterone's normal, or I don't have, I, I tested HSCRP, which is a, a marker of, of inflammation and it's normal. Um, but you know, so I, I don't have inflammation or I had my blood work done. I had my fasting insulin run. I had my, uh, blood, my blood glucose run. I had my A1C run and I don't have insulin resistance because it doesn't show that on lab work, but yeah, you have all the symptoms of insulin resistance. You know what I mean? So, um, I always go off of symptoms first when looking at is the diet that I'm working with on this person actually helping them? Well, how are their symptoms? Like, are they improving? So anyway, enough about that, but don't over rely on labs. This stuff can be going on even if it's not necessarily showing up in a way that you can see right there on paper. Uh, if you have skin issues, so if you're dealing with like a lot of acne or an acne can be multiple things, I will say. Like it's not always inflammation. It can like high testosterone can raise, can increase acne because it increases the sebum under the skin. Um, you know, your age obviously plays a role in that. Uh, but if you're dealing with like rashes, hives, um, really intense acne, like cystic acne or just like excessive acne for your age, um, and eczema, especially eczema. Those are all kind of things that I associate with gut health issues, which then I associate with inflammation. So if you're actively having these things or they're happening regularly, there's likely something going on inflammatory wise in the body. And then the last one that I see a lot is inability to lose weight. And I would say in with a caveat, inability to lose weight after trying all the methods that you can to lose weight, if that makes sense. So some people come to me and they're like, I can't lose weight no matter what I do. And I'm like, well, how are you eating? And they're telling me that they're trying to eat a healthy diet. Um, but their version of a healthy diet is like the classical sort of like Western idea of a healthy diet. Um, I kind of like call it, I mean, I don't really have anything that I call it, but it's like this, this diet style that I think popularized sort of in like the, 
I want to say like the 90s, 2000s, the kind of like woman's diet. It's like yogurt and granola and like light foods, you know, um, one piece of toast and it has like a little bit of tomato on it or say, you know what I mean? It's just like very light, like, um, dainty foods, um, a lot of cold foods, a lot of fruit. Um, that tends to be like the kind of like diet that a lot of people think is like healthy. Like they're eating like cottage cheese for breakfast with some peaches and then they're having yogurt for snacks and they're having a granola bar. And, you know, for dinner, they're having like a salad with like, I don't know, different stuff on it, but it's just not that substantial. Like it's not, it's not really a a lot of substantial food. And it also has a lot of sugar, like a lot of hidden sugar in that diet. Um, so, um, uh, if that's what's going on, if, if you're still kind of eating, like, like I, what I would do first is, is track what you're eating on like my fitness pal or some other app just for like a week you know, don't lie on it. Just like say exactly what you're eating. There's no, there's no judgment or shame in any of this. It's just for information. It's just to give you an idea of what is going on on your normal, regular week. Look at, you know, how many grams of sugar is in that. And if it's more than like 10, 15 grams of added sugar a day, that could be the reason why you're not losing weight. Because if you have PCOS and you have that insulin resistant component and there's too many um, sugars and starches in your diet relative to the amount of like protein and fats that you're eating, then I've seen that be enough to keep somebody from losing. Um, and even when they're, you know, eating lower calorie or whatever. So I always account for that first, but if that's accounted for, let's say this person's eating, uh, what I would consider like a really healthy kind of weight loss diet. Like they're eating a lot of salmon and they're eating a lot of broccoli and they've got like, they've got good quality fiber and salads and all these things, um, in their diet, but maybe they're having like, um, diet soda with it, or they're having like some of those like little hundred calorie packs, or they're eating, you know, whole wheat bread and, um, some of these different things that you wouldn't think would be problems because they're overall healthy foods and they're eating the right amount of these and they're still not losing weight, then that could be a sign that you've got some food sensitivities to some of the things that you're eating regularly, um, even if they're healthy foods, and those could be holding you back. What I do notice about the body is that it seems like it has to feel safe in order to let go of weight. I always think about body fat as a safety mechanism. So rather than getting angry at the body for like not dropping pounds or not dropping body fat when you want it to or keeping, you know, the little tire of fat that you've got around your middle, rather than getting angry at the body for that, I always try to appreciate and thank the body for what it's trying to do. Your body's very primal. It's not living in this modern age. It doesn't understand that we have unlimited food available to us, most of us, you know, thank goodness. Um, it doesn't understand that. What it thinks is something's wrong. I'm sick. Everything's inflamed. 
I need this fat to keep me safe because if I'm sick, I'm going to need fat stores to go off of because I probably won't be able to go out and forage and hunt and whatever. So um, I always think about it that way. If your body is having trouble letting go of weight, it's because it's trying to keep you safe. So little mindset change. I don't know if that's helps any, you know, if that helps you at all, it helps me to think about it that way because it gives me a little bit more compassion for myself and my body and for how I'm, I'm treating it. And I find that when you make changes for your body out of a place of love rather than a place of hate tends to go better. Um, so, but if you're having trouble losing weight, like it just doesn't seem like it's coming off no matter what you do, like you've tried all the things you've done full keto, you know, you're just like, I've eaten 30 grams of carbs a day and like nothing's happening. It's very likely that there's some inflammation happening and that's what's holding you back. So the two most common places I see inflammation come from in PCOS are food sensitivities or allergies and gut dysbiosis. So um, gut dysbiosis, let's talk about that first because that can feed into food sensitivities, allergies. But if you have gut dysbiosis, this means that the bacteria and other organisms in the gut, it's not all bacteria, but the bacterial balance of the gut is out of balance. So you've got too much, quote unquote, bad bacteria relative to good bacteria. Um, as an aside, most bacteria is like good in the right quantity. It's not so much about like having good strains and bad strains. It's about how much of each of these things you have. Anyway, Um so when the bacterial balance is off, which can be caused by a lot of different things that we kind of mentioned before, having excess estrogen as well, like when you have PCOS, a lot of times you're kind of estrogen dominant, that can throw off the gut microbiome again, birth control, these kinds of things. So once the gut's sort of out of balance, um, and we know that most people with PCOS do deal with gut dysbiosis, uh, this can then trigger the development of like leaky gut which can then trigger the development of food sensitivities. So it can be a precursor to having food sensitivities and food allergies. Um, gut dysbiosis can, but in and of itself, it can also be inflammatory. So um, when the bacterial balance is not aligned for the body, that automatically can trigger a type of low-grade inflammation because um, the body senses that as like sort of a threat. So, um, when you have particularly digestive issues, that's like very much associated with gut dysbiosis. Um, even if it's upper digestive, so let's say it's in your stomach, it's reflux, um, something like that. Even that is still associated with gut microbiome imbalances. Another thing I failed to mention is that if you have a lot of um, yeast infections or UTIs, these are also associated with gut dysbiosis because all of the different mucous membranes of your body, well, really every part of your body has its own microbiome, but particularly like the mucous membrane. So like the, the urinary tract, the vagina, the mouth, they all have their own microbiomes and they're all connected to the main microbiome in the colon. So when any one of those things is out of balance, it can throw the other ones out of balance, but particularly if the gut one is out of balance, it will throw the other ones out of balance. So if you deal with like, um, you know, I see this a lot in like chronic yeast infections, chronic UTIs, get your teeth checked too, because we know that if you have um, dental stuff going on, if you've got gingivitis, um, 
it actually will throw off the, um, it will cause inflammation in the body too, and can throw off the gut microbiome as well, um, in and of itself, like on its own. I used to think that the like teeth stuff was all connected to the gut. Um, and it was the gut's fault that the teeth were like out of balance. And there's definitely some truth to that. Like, especially people who like really take care of their teeth, but they still get cavities all the time. It's often connected to the gut, but, um, it really does work vice versa as well. So if you're not taking care of your teeth, um, then it can be affecting your gut. So that's something that people don't think about a lot that we should think about. Um, but gut dysbiosis on its own can trigger some, um, some issues with inflammation. And that tends to be like a major place where I see inflammation coming from in PCOS. So if we have PCOS and we know that it's kind of an inflammatory type of PCOS, it always goes back to the gut and working on the gut. Now, um, let's talk about food sensitivities and allergies though, because I feel like this is the place where as a nutrition person, we have the most influence. So once we have gut dysbiosis, um, we can start to develop leaky gut, also called intestinal permeability. This is sort of a, um, a kind of weakness in the lining of the gut so that larger particles of food get into the bloodstream. And your immune system, which is very smart, knows that those large particles of food should not be there and it mounts an immune response. So um, this is where the development of most food sensitivities come from. Now, food allergies, that's a little bit more complex um, and can also be something that you've carried with you a long time. But I do often see food allergies that aren't um, anaphylactic in nature. So like your throat doesn't close up when you eat the food, but you have like a severe like histamine response. So you've got hives or um, you're dealing with um, you get like immediate diarrhea or, you know, different things like that. Those can be food allergy responses, too. But food sensitivities, I find, are one of the big sort of mediators of inflammation because a lot of people don't know they're happening. They are delayed. Um, the responses to them can happen within a couple of hours, but typically it's a few days later, which makes it really murky and hard to figure out. And um, whereas like allergies, true allergies tend to happen more immediately, like within that first like few hours to first day. And... Um, they can be more subtle. So with a food allergy, you know, you tend to have pretty like, it, it's pretty obvious. Like the signs are, are there. You're getting a migraine right away or like you're having like diarrhea, like within a couple hours or you are um, throwing up uh, or you, I don't know, what's another sign of it? Histamine reactions are huge. So like, you, or you get hives, you know, those kinds of things. That's, it's like, pr those are pretty obvious, right? You're like, whoa, something's going on here. And I connect it to the fact that like, I drank this whey protein shake and then I threw up. Um, but food sensitivities are more subtle. It could be like, you know, delayed digestive issues. So like delayed di diarrhea, constipation issues. Um, it could be reflux. It could be, um, all kinds of different things, headaches. Uh, I find that with autoimmunity, I often see people who their joint pain flares or their chronic pain flares, or they have a flare of their autoimmune condition, whatever it is, their antibodies go up in Hashimoto's, you know, these kinds of things. So there's connections with food sensitivities to a lot of different stuff. And, um, that 
can be one source of inflammation in the body. And I find that in PCOS, it's a big one because a lot of us do have food sensitivities. And, you know, I've talked before about like, I get asked quite a bit if if you need to be gluten-free or you need to be dairy-free with PCOS. And the answer is maybe. Um, And this is why you see so much disagreement amongst practitioners, some people being very much like, you don't need to avoid any food for PCOS. And some people being like, you can never eat gluten and dairy. Um, it's, it's a very nuanced issue. So sometimes people like to take a side, um, just to make it, just to make their messaging more clear. But, um, fundamentally you don't need to remove any food unless you have an issue with it, but having issues with certain foods is pretty common in PCOS. So I guess that's kind of like the long answer of it. So is it likely that you have, if you have an autoimmune condition and you've got some skin issues and you have PCOS that you have a food sensitivity? Yeah, I'd say it's incredibly likely. I'd, I'd go as far as to wager, like I would really be surprised if you didn't. Um, But the thing to understand about food sensitivities is that they don't necessarily have to be permanent. Um, It's not the same thing as an allergy. So it's not something where it's like, oh, you find out you're allergic to it, you can never eat it again. No, a food sensitivity is more just kind of like a sign that your body, that your gut is out of balance and it needs to kind of be healed. And if you can do that, a lot of times you can add those foods back in and and, um, you won't have issues with them anymore. Um, And I've seen that many, many times. So I feel confident saying that now there is an element of like, if it's been a sensitivity for a really long time, or if you also have an allergy to it, uh, you may not be able to reintroduce the food, but usually most of the people I work with can get most of their foods back into their diet that they find out that they, they have like pretty serious issues with. But if you're dealing with the kind of inflammatory PCOS symptoms, and you have, um, if you're dealing with the, the inflammatory symptoms and you have PCOS, it's very likely that there is a food sensitivity going on. Food sensitivities, because they often stem from leaky gut, they tend to develop to things that you eat a lot of. So this is like a lot of people's complaint about food sensitivity testing because they're like, well, when I took a test, it just showed all foods that I eat all the time. And, um, yeah, it, it's going to do that. That's because your gut barrier is weak and, and your body is starting to make an inflammatory response to things that are in your gut a lot that you're, you're digesting all of the time. Um, some immune responses to food are normal. It's, it's not so much about the fact that you have an immune response to a food. It's about the fact that if the immune response has become excessive, And this is the thing about food sensitivity testing and why it can be difficult to interpret on your own at home because you have to have a trained eye to be able to to read not just what the test results say, but also to put it into the context of the person and say, okay, these are the things I think that are more likely actual issues. And these are the things that I think are just along for the ride. And depending on what test you do, some of these home kits are really sensitive. And so they're going to show you like everything and it's probably going to be everything that you eat. And so you're going to be like, what? I can't remove like a hundred foods. Then I'll have nothing to eat. And no, you don't need to. 
Oftentimes with food sensitivities, it's not about removing every little thing. It's about removing just enough stuff that your gut has the space to heal. So that's where a trained eye really helps. Um, somebody who, who really understands how to work with food sensitivities. And I feel food sensitivities is kind of a passion of mine. Like I've been doing that in practice now, the whole time I've been in practice, I've been doing food sensitivity stuff. I used to just do elimination diets and I got into testing and I've, I've switched test companies a couple of times. And now I feel like I'm, I'm in a really good spot with, with testing. Um, but it's something that I've really honed a skill for. And it's definitely not something where it's like, okay, these are your foods, remove them, never eat them again. Bye. It's like, it's, it's far more complex figuring out what the person really looks like, um, what their goals are, what their symptoms are, and then trying to figure out what's the least amount of foods that we can remove here to get this person feeling better and then start to add them back in. So, um, Keep that in mind if you're trying to work on food sensitivities on your own. But I am going to tell you how I would work on it on my own um, in case that's something that you want to do. A little plug for the fact that my functional PCOS course, not the group program, but the course does have a full um, month phase just on elimination dieting for figuring out food sensitivities. So if this is something that you want to do on your own, but you would like more of a guide for how to do that, the course will help you do that. And I know it's confusing, not the group program, the group program, we're not going to go over, um, we're not going to do elimination diets or anything like that during it, but the course itself, um, is on there and you can access that anytime. So if you feel like you have, um, dysbiosis issues, or if you feel like you have food sensitivity issues, then, uh, I recommend two major approaches. The first is if you can completing something called a comprehensive elimination diet. Um, now this can be triggering for a lot of people because it does require removing several food groups for a length of time before you add them back in. And I've seen it trigger people in different ways. Um, if you've got a history of, of eating disorders or disordered eating, it may not be the best thing for you to do. Um, if you're not, you know, I would consult with your, whatever therapist you're working with on that stuff to see if you're in the right frame of mind for it. Uh, I would highly recommend if you have a history of that kind of stuff that you work on it with under the guidance of a practitioner or something. So like I will sometimes work with people who are, you know, they've been in recovery a long time, like they're in a much better mental place. They have their therapist working with them and I help them through that process because if you have an outside perspective to kind of tell you like, okay, it's time to start adding these foods back in, you know, you don't need to be scared, this kind of thing, it can help. But sometimes when you're doing it on your own, it can be very triggering. Um, so keep that in mind. However, I do think it's the best way to figure out if you've got food sensitivity issues on your own. So you would remove the most common allergenic foods. And honestly, this list can vary person to person. I would say that the most, um, the most effective elimination diets do remove like the big stuff. So they'll remove, um, wheat, uh, dairy, eggs, um, usually legumes too. Although I often keep chickpeas in there cause I, I very rarely have seen anybody with a chickpea issue. Um, unless it's like an intolerance and that gives them bloating or something, but that's a different deal. Uh, so legumes like soy, 
And um, those are kind of like the big four. And then you also are removing like other inflammatory foods. So like you're removing um, sugar from your diet. You're removing fried foods. Like by extension, if you're removing dairy, eggs, and wheat, like there's going to be not too many options, at least fast food or restaurant wise for you to eat at. Cause there's typically, I mean, one of those things is going to be in almost everything or there's cross contamination or whatever. And I would highly recommend while you're doing a comprehensive elimination, if you want to really use it as an experiment and get the best results, I would avoid eating out um, too much unless you can really be certain that the foods are not going to contain any of that stuff. Um, I would definitely not eat at any fast food restaurants cause I just don't trust those, but there's occasionally like a really good, you know, um, allergen friendly, uh, restaurant in certain cities where you could maybe get like a meal, um, or some, a place like Kava tends to be like a decent place when you're on an elimination diet, but yeah, other, other, uh, places are kind of rough. So, um, you would remove all the most common allergenic foods. Now, if you also have an allergy to any type of shellfish, I would recommend removing all shellfish. If you have an allergy to almonds or a tree nut, I'd recommend removing all tree nuts because it could be possible that you you're reacting to a different one that's in your diet regularly and you just don't realize it. Like I said, with food sensitivities, a lot of times the reactions are subtle. They're happening under the surface, especially when you're eating a lot of foods that you're sensitive to. Your body cannot give you diarrhea every second of every day. Um, you, you know, you would not survive. So your body comes up with other ways of, of dealing with, with these sensitivity reactions. So when you remove all of those foods, um, you're going to do that for about, about 30 days, you know, different people say different things. Some people say three weeks, some people say six weeks, the antibodies from an IgG mediated food sensitivity last in your system about 28 uh, they have a half-life of 28 days. So that means by 30 days in, you should have cleared about 50% of them. And that's usually enough that if you start adding foods back slowly, that you should be able to tell if there's a problem more immediately. So the cool thing about food sensitivities is that if you do have one, you remove the food for a while, and then you add it back in, your body's usually able to tell you a lot more strongly and a lot more immediately if it's a problem. And a lot of people think, oh, well, I removed this food, and then when I add it back, I feel terrible, so I actually, like, I gave myself a food sensitivity. And that's really not what's happening. It's just that your immune system has had enough space that now it can say, oh, wow, like, you're eating something. We don't like this. Don't eat this. Um, and it can make it more obvious for you. Whereas if you're eating that food day in, day out, all day long, every day, a lot of times people feel pretty crappy and they don't kind of like really can't put a finger on exactly why or how. So, um, remove them 30 days and then I recommend adding them back one at a time. Um, I usually take about a week in between with my clients Keep in mind too that the, if there's a food that is like a relatively healthy food, but you eat it a lot, um, some examples of things that I've seen people be sensitive to would be like spinach, bananas, uh, sweet potatoes. If there's something that you like really heavily rely on in the um, kind of vegetable and fruit variety, a lot of times tropical fruits, coconut, um, those kinds of things. I see more commonly as sensitivities than like other foods. I it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility for me to see somebody with, 
an issue with meats, but if I do see issues with meats, it's typically pork and beef. Um, I very rarely have seen anybody with an issue with um, salmon or cod or um, chicken or turkey. But, you know, if if you suspect that you might have an issue with a, with some of those meats, then that that's another thing that you might want to remove. Um, and like I said, pork is like probably the most common one I see, followed by beef. Um, but even if you just remove gluten, eggs, and dairy, I think that's enough that you, when you add them back in, should probably be able to tell if there's an issue with one of them. Um, it all really just depends on you. And this is why it's like... like Technically, the gold standard for figuring out food sensitivities is to do this type of diet. Like this is what we're taught in nutrition school. Um, but uh, I think there's a weakness to it of the fact that a lot of people develop pretty strong sensitivities to foods that they eat a lot of if they've been eating them for a long time and they've had leaky gut for a long time. Like I see so many issues with food sensitivities in my practice. And I don't know if it's just kind of that those are the types of people that are attracted to working with me and like on some energetic level, like they know that I'm going to be good at helping them with that. Like I do, you know, I'm kind of woo woo. So I believe in energies and stuff like that. And I believe that a lot of the people that, that I, that are attracted to working with me are the people that I'm equipped to help heal. If that makes sense. Like not everybody's for me and I'm not for everybody, but the people that I am, I am. And since food sensitivity is such a passion of mine, I get a lot of people with those issues. So I don't know um, if it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy or what, but I have had so many people be sensitive to like some really weird stuff and, and truly sensitive, not just like, oh, it came up on a test. We removed it. We added back in and there's no problem. So it probably wasn't a problem to begin with. But I'm talking, I had a woman that I worked with who had severe um, migraine headaches for years and um, it was caused in part by a really strong sensitivity to blueberries. It was like the most random thing ever. But I kid you not, she took blueberries out of her diet and the headache stopped. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, these things, they're weird, but they sometimes happen. If you're a weird case or you feel like, you know, you do this whole thing, like maybe you've done a whole 30 before, which is a, a good, like, basic elimination diet, which by the way, if you need like some free guidance somewhere of like how to kind of do this thing that I think they, they do a pretty good job of that. Um, but if you have gone through that kind of thing, you've added the foods back in correctly. You didn't just like binge on them all at once, but you did them one at a time and you're still like, I don't feel like that's really getting to the root or like it helped, but, but the problem still keeps getting worse or whatever. Um, then it's probably time to work, to work with a professional and maybe think about professional testing. So in my practice, I do, um, I use precision point diagnostics, which is kind of like, it's the food sensitivity allergy testing that most, uh, professional nutritionists use because it tests for multiple different types of antibody responses. So it kind of gives us a, a more comprehensive picture of the immune system than just, um, your basic food sensitivity test. Um, that's what I run, but other practitioners use different things. I mean, other people have different ways of, of managing gut issues. I find that it's really effective to remove the sensitive foods 
and then work on repairing the gut lining while the foods are out of the system. I find that that works faster than keeping the foods in and trying to repair the gut lining. So um, that's just my approach to it. But that's what I would suggest if you feel like you're dealing with with food sensitivities. And like I said, uh, the functional PCOS course does have a whole month-long guided um, elimination diet process to help you with that. Um, the next thing to do, and this feeds into like part two or like the other thing I would do, this is where I would also start if you're not comfortable doing an elimination diet or, you know, you're just like not in the frame of mind for that is start by improving your gut health, um, as best you can with some outside tools. So, uh, first improving your nutrition. So obviously cutting out some of that inflammatory stuff, like avoiding the fried foods and the things like that, you know, moderating that stuff a lot more, moderating sugar a lot more, um, trying to switch your oils from mostly seed oils like canola and soy and corn, vegetable oil to more healthy anti-inflammatory oils like extra virgin olive oil. It's worth it to spend the money on the really good quality olive oils and avocado oils and stuff. It makes a big difference in how inflammatory your meals are. Um, in particular, extra virgin olive oil, like even if you just take it as a shot, so good for you. Um, so removing some of that inflammatory stuff, removing alcohol, um, at least for the most part, because it's damaging for the gut, all that kind of thing, increasing your fiber intake, um, aiming for about 35 grams of fiber a day coming from fruits and vegetables and whole foods, not from psyllium husk. Although if you need a little psyllium husk to kind of cover the gap, that's okay. Um, improving how much water you're drinking, getting like two liters of water a day. These kind of like, you know, your basic get healthier stuff. And I did a list of kind of the the best, most anti-inflammatory foods to sort of like add into your diet if you can kind of regularly include them. They can be really helpful. Um, blueberries is, um, you know, forget about the lady who had the migraines. <laughs> blueberries is uh, a big one. It's specifically blueberries, but all, all kinds of berries are good and anti-inflammatory, but specifically blueberries have been studied, um, been found to be very anti-inflammatory. So blueberries, um, olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, uh, salmon, because of the fats in the salmon, the omega-3 fatty acids, those are also really beneficial. You know, a lot of, a lot of inflammation has to do with the kinds of fats that you're using and the amounts of fats that you're using. And, um, if you are having most of your fats coming from really good olive oil and salmon and stuff like that, and avocado, you're going to be much, you're going to have a much less inflammatory profile than somebody who's eating a lot of fast food, fried food, um, who's cooking with vegetable oil and who is, um, you know, not really eating much of that other stuff. So keeping in mind the balance with those things needs to be heavily in favor of omega-3s and then monounsaturated fats, which would be your olive oil, avocado oil. Omega-3s would come from your fatty fish. So um, salmon is the one that I usually, you know, recommend. Most people know salmon's a pretty healthy food, but you can also get omega-3s from really any kind of fish or seafood. Um, uh, cod is a good source. 
Um, shrimp is even a good source. And then, you know, um, I'm blanking on other other ones. But like if it's seafood, it's probably got good omega-3s. So you can look at that. And then if you if you change the meat that you're eating, so let's say you're eating a lot of beef and you like beef and that's fine. I'm not against that. Um, but eating more grass-fed, grass-finished beef because the fat profile in that beef is more, more beneficial. It's got more omega-3s in it and a little less saturated fat. Um, so, you know, avoiding too much butter and, and stuff like that. And you can have in in some good grass fed butter is fine, but I think we kind of got into this place for a while as a culture where we were like railing against the evils of fat from like the nineties. And we're like, no, fat is not evil. I can cook with butter. And then we started just like drowning stuff in butter grass-fed butter, and we were like, it's Kerrygold. Um, yes, <laughs> like a little bit of grass-fed butter in your life, even daily, is fine. It's good for you. Um, it's good to have that variety. It's something your grandparents would have eaten, and that's good. But uh, I wouldn't cook all your food in grass-fed butter. You know what I mean? Like, add some olive oil in there sometimes, my friends. Or you know what's even good? A little mix. A little mix of grass-fed butter and really good olive oil. Oh, I'm hungry. I'm going to have to cook. Um, So improving your gut through those foods. Let's see what were some of the other foods. Prebiotic foods. So uh, these are foods that have like fibers in them that the gut, the good gut bacteria like to eat. So things like sunchokes, Jerusalem artichokes, um, even globe artichokes, like regular artichokes are good sources of prebiotics. Really most fruits and vegetables have prebiotics in them. So you don't need to get too crazy about like oh, I specifically need to eat a sunchoke every day. As long as you're eating, you're getting your fiber intake, which is about 35 grams, you're probably going to be getting a good amount of prebiotic fiber in there. Um, Beans are a good source of prebiotic fiber. And um, yeah, so those are some really nice anti-inflammatory foods you can add to your diet and they can really help. Um, to keep those inflammation levels lower or to lower the ones that are already there. So basically, I mean, if you kind of think about it, that's like eating a Mediterranean diet. Um, And that is the best studied diet for inflammation. There's oodles of studies on the Mediterranean diet reducing inflammation in people. So if you need a place to start in that department, I always recommend starting with a Mediterranean diet and you can always modify it later. I have an episode it's a really popular episode, the most popular episode of this podcast, actually, about the Mediterranean diet and how to do it and how to modify it for PCOS. So you might want to take a, a listen to that if that's kind of the route that you're going. So those are the two routes, food sensitivity route, Mediterranean diet route. Um, and both of those can lead you to the very similar place. Like, for example, if you do the elimination diet route, I still think incorporating Mediterranean diet principles adding in those anti-inflammatory foods while you're removing the inflammatory foods will be the most effective way to do that. A lot of people get stuck on elimination diets and they're like, I don't know what to eat. So they just don't eat anything or they like start starving themselves. They start, um, they eat like a bunch of like Epic bars. (laughs) Um, Don't get lost in that trap. Like really try to increase the amount of plant foods that you're eating. I mean, that's, that's really going to do a lot for you while you're removing those inflammatory foods. And then when you add the foods back in, you know, I would stay on kind of like this Mediterranean diet and just 
Mediterranean diet doesn't cut any food groups. So it includes some, you know, cheese and butter and it includes um, some grains and things like that. So once you've added the foods back in and figured out what you can still consume pretty safely, you know, you can still follow that, that diet, just removing whatever, you know, whatever it is that still seems to cause you problems. If you've removed foods um, and then you've added them back in and you're still having problems with them um, and the problems aren't like, you know, as long as the problems aren't like if they're hives and, and they're, they seem like allergies, then I would definitely go pursue an allergist and start trying to get tested for that stuff because you don't want to keep testing allergies. But if it's more of a food sensitivity reaction um, and it doesn't go well the first time, wait another month, try it again. And then um, if it doesn't go well after that, I'd give it a few months, try again. You know, you just want to keep trying from time to time. But every time you try and it doesn't go well, I'd wait a little bit longer in between for the next time. Um and if you're doing more of a Mediterranean style diet and you find that, you know, it's like I'm doing it right, but it doesn't seem to be working or I'm still having a lot of digestive issues, then you probably are dealing with like a food sensitivity. and You should probably go back to round one and kind of work on that first or, you know, work with a professional who can help you, who can help like test you, um, I usually pair like principles of elimination diet with test results and that kind of gets me the best results. Now, aside from food, oh, one thing I forgot to mention, matcha or green tea, also really helpful for your gut. Um, aside from the food aspect, there's really a supplement aspect that kind of I find needs to be there. So I would love, it would be so great if we could like repair the gut microbiome without any probiotics or like any supplements. We could just like eat, I don't know, kefir or sauerkraut or whatever. And I do see a lot of people and they're like, I really just want to, you know, do it with all with food. Um, the thing about that is that it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, because the amount of food that you would have to eat in order to get enough of the nutrients to not just like hold you steady, but actually like replete a lot of stuff. And then to help balance out the microbiome, it would be a lot of really targeted food consumption that probably, um, would be very difficult for the average person. It has to be done daily. And not only that, but I find that a lot of probiotic foods, since they're fermented, they often also can be things that people are sensitive to. Cause I see a lot of clients who are sensitive to yeasts and molds, and um, those foods are kind of like hotbeds for those things. And so I find that for some people, they even like trigger symptoms. So instead, um, I do find that using really good high quality probiotics um, is like the number one step that I think needs to happen, especially while you're doing an elimination diet, but I'd highly recommend it anyway. Like I'm one of those people who thinks that everyone should be on a probiotic. That's kind of like if somebody, you know, I don't know, tied my hands. It was like, what supplement? You have one supplement that everyone needs to be on. What will it be? Um, it would be very hard for me to make that decision, but I think probiotics would be a strong choice. Uh, I just think the world we live in now is just so designed to screw up our microbiomes that I personally am supplemented with a probiotic every day. Like 
And when you've got PCOS and you've got dysbiosis kind of like as part of your whole deal, um, I just think it's very helpful to have a good probiotic. I will link in the show notes to, you know, an over-the-counter one that I recommend um, as you're just getting started. If you're going to use any of the, like, or the much stronger stuff, I do recommend working with a professional because different probiotics have different strains and different people require different things. And I have seen people kind of mess themselves up a little bit, going a little crazy with the probiotics. So be careful. Um, but that's one that I find works pretty well for, for, um, for almost everybody. The other thing, um, is that while you're taking probiotics, sometimes probiotics can hurt people's stomachs. And that typically doesn't mean that it's like, bad for them. It just means that they need to build a tolerance to it. Uh, because when you add in good bacteria into the gut, it, it can cause some of the bad bacteria to die off and that can be kind of painful. And there's just, you know, some, some reactions that can happen when bacteria are rebalancing, uh, sometimes called die-off reactions. So you sometimes have to be careful to slowly increase the amount of probiotic that you're taking. So if you're having issues with that, try, try cutting back some and, and doing it a little bit slower, you know, cutting the pill in half, something like that, if you can. The other thing that I recommend doing concurrently with probiotics is, is some sort of prebiotic powder. Um, I usually do a resistant starch powder just because most people aren't getting enough prebiotics. Like if you're really being really diligent about your fiber consumption, like I mentioned earlier, you're probably getting enough, but sometimes it doesn't hurt to have a little bit more. This is particularly something that can cause issues in people whose guts are kind of not quite ready for it yet because prebiotics tend to be made up of like fermentable starches and those fermentable starches are fermented down by bacteria who then have to eat the fermentation, like the gases and stuff. And you have to have enough bacteria all down the chain to do that process. If you're missing um, a link in that chain, or if one of the links in that chain is weak, you're going to get excess gas production from prebiotics. And this is often why, like if you struggle to digest FODMAP containing foods, that is often a reason why I did do a podcast in depth uh, about that topic in particular, and it's called the IBS PCOS connection. So even if you don't have IBS, but you feel like you you have trouble digesting FODMAPs or, or certain fibers, things like that, you might like that podcast. You might find it helpful. But prebiotics, um, if you're tolerating them well, or you build up until you're, you're tolerating them well, those can also really help to to make those changes to the microbiome more permanent because probiotics, you know, they flush out of your system every, every day. So you got to keep taking them. They will make some changes over time, but you got to be pretty diligent with them. Um, the prebiotics help to feed those colonies of good bacteria so that eventually, hopefully you, you know, won't have to be as diligent with all that stuff. And maybe you can do it just with food alone. And, you know, we are running out of time here. It has been an hour and 16 minutes, so this has been a long one. There's a lot more I could say on this topic, um, a lot more supplements that I use in practice, things like that, but I don't feel super comfortable talking too much more about supplements. I, I always get a little iffy about supplements just because I don't want people to accidentally um, do too much or I know how it is. Like I used to listen to podcasts and be like, oh, I'm going to try that. Oh, I'm going to try that. Um, 
And I got myself into some trouble doing that. So I would highly recommend, you know, um, anything that you try, you want to give it a good, make it a good scientific experiment. So try to isolate it out from other things. Try to not be taking like 30 supplements at a time if you don't know how your body's reacting to each different one. Um, and give with supplements, you got to give them time as well. It's not like a medication where you can tell almost immediately with a supplement. Usually you have to take it for at least 30 days with herbs. Sometimes it's 90 days before you can really see, um, the changes. So be patient with the process. Um, but I definitely think probiotics are, are big. So I highly recommend those. And, um, if any of this stuff feels like, I have a lot of people tell me like, if I tried to do all that, I'd just be like on the toilet all day. None of this would work for me. If all of this stuff feels like too overwhelming because you're dealing with a lot of digestive issues, you're dealing with a lot of diarrhea. And so even like eating like salad, like eating anything raw, um, all that kind of stuff seems to trigger you. You, this may be too advanced in the gut healing process for you. This, I'm coming at this from a person who's got some gut health issues for sure, but they're not so severe that they're having like daily diarrhea. If you're having daily diarrhea, I would highly recommend working with a professional, um, but you may need to go backwards more. So typically in those people, I'm like removing FODMAP foods too. Sometimes we're doing like no raw foods, like low fiber diets to try to like give their gut some space. I mean, it's a whole deal. And it's a different story than what I told here. So if you feel like this is not going to work for me because it's going to really mess up my gut, you may be one of those people. And so you might like that episode, um, the IBS PCOS connection that talks about that a lot. Um, and you may also benefit from working one-on-one with somebody, but that's all I have for you guys today. And I hope you have a really good rest of your week and, um, I will talk to you soon. Please don't forget to leave a review. I love you. I love you. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye. If you learned something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both, I'd love it if you would leave me an iTunes review and share this with a friend. If this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer, there is a Google form that you can use to ask me any question you want. And I might answer it here on the podcast. I do it all the time and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.